Hi, welcome to Peacock Politics. Before we get going, a disclaimer of sorts. I recorded this episode in the weeks just before the COVID-19 outbreak turned into this life-altering pandemic, so that's why we haven't referenced it. Now that's done, sit back and join me in learning a little bit more about how Australian politics works in a normal world. Hopefully we get back there soon, and please do all you can to stay healthy. A Podcast One production. In doing this series, there's a word that keeps on popping up, lobbying. I understand the meaning of it, but to be honest, I don't actually know a hell of a lot about it. Politicians are lobbied by lobbyists pushing their lobby group to do what exactly? I'm Adam Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, I'm about to delve into the topic of lobbying in Australian politics. What is it? Why is it? And what effect does it have on how politicians do what they are put there for? Represent us. My guest is Danielle Wood, Program Director, Budget Policy and Institutional Reform at the Grattan Institute, which is an Australian public policy think tank. Now, Danielle's an expert in budget policy, which means she knows where the money goes in politics and why. So that's a fascinating subject in itself. But thank you for your time on Peacock Politics, Danielle. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. No worries. So my first question to you is actually just to set the scene. What's your actual connection to lobbying? Have you lobbied yourself? Do you help people lobby? Uh, So Grattan Institute advocates for changes that we think are in the public interest. So in that sense, I suppose I am a lobbyist myself. So I go and talk to politicians, I talk to public servants, and I try and get them to make decisions which I think would be a good thing for Australia. So we might be a little bit different from other types of lobbyists that are taking a more narrow perspective. You know, is this good for my particular company, for example? But, you know, I would consider part of what I do is certainly lobbying. But I'm also interested in lobbying from a research perspective because I think it can really shape the way policy is made. And so I think the rules of the game around lobbying are really, really important for getting good policy up. So you lobby on behalf of what you see as common sense as opposed to many other people who lobby on behalf of dollars and cents. Exactly right. So in a way, I think of it as a bit of a counterbalance. So we do research, we put up policies that we think are in the interests of Australians as a whole, and other people are there advocating for their particular bottom line, as you say. Who are who are the people who are lobbyists? Are they, and this is where the crossover happens, I guess, that am I right in saying that maybe an advantage if you know the political game really well, i.e. you've worked in politics or you've worked for a minister or you've worked for a member of parliament and then you go to work for a a lobbyist, it, it would work really well for you? Absolutely. Connections are everything in this game. So if we look at the lobbyist register, which is only a narrow section of lobbyists, but they need to declare whether or not they were a former government representative. So they were a minister or a backbencher or a political advisor. And we know that about 40% of them were former government representatives, so a fairly significant chunk of third-party lobbyists are coming from that kind of political background. And the really interesting thing you see when you look at those firms that do lobby on behalf of clients, there's a couple of big ones, um, Barton Deacon, which is a specialist on the coalition side of politics, and a lot of their senior people will be either former ministers or chief of staffs, and Hawker Britain on the, the Labor Party side, they actually have the same owner, they're, they're sister companies, um, each targeting a different side of politics. When the coalition is in power, you'll see Barton Deacon has a lot of staff, Hawker Britain has a you know really small staff, and <laughs> vice versa when the other side is in power. Um, so what are they selling? They're selling connections. 
um, it's it's incredibly clear when you look at the numbers that what matters is the relationships. And those former staffers, those former ministers have those relationships that can help them open doors. And this is, you know, I think something quite insidious about lobbying is that increasingly this is a you know pretty mainstream career path for politicians leaving politics. So we actually went back and looked since 1990, where did every minister and assistant minister go? Like what was it after they left politics? Where did they actually go and work? And about a quarter of them were going into what we would think of as lobbying roles. So either working for one of these lobbying firms, uh, working as government relations in, inside big corporates, working for a peak body like the, the Minerals Council. You know, this is now a standard career path after politics. And I think that raises questions about, you know, will politicians have an eye to those future career prospects when they're making decisions in office? How are they using those relationships immediately after leaving politics? Um, So there's supposed to be an 18-month cooling-off period. So if you work as a minister in a particular sector, you're not supposed to go and work lobbying for that sector for 18 months. Uh, but it's not clear at all that that's being enforced particularly rigorously. And that raises, I think, all sorts of questions for democracy. So it's it's lucrative to become a lobbyist, a powerful lobbyist in terms of financial benefit? I believe so. Um, so, you know, I, I suspect that many of the former ministers would have a substantial increase in their salary after leaving politics and becoming a lobbyist. Mm. That's not dangerous at all, is it? No, what could go wrong? <laughs> okay, I've, I've talked to a few politicians during this podcast and they say that, yeah, we're there to vote on bills when we're in Canberra, work on committees about policy and meet with lobbyists. So that last bit, did lobbyists swarm Canberra? Is that how it works? They absolutely do. So if you walk around Parliament House during a parliamentary sitting week, um, you will see a whole lot of people walking the corridors that are not politicians and advisors. They'll often have a little orange pass around their neck, which allows them to walk unescorted through the private areas of Parliament House. And what they are there to do is to knock on doors, talk to ministers, talk to backbenchers, talk to people on the other side of Parliament and try and put their position in terms of policies they'd like to see or policies that they'd like to see come off the table. So they can just literally walk around and knock on any door they want. They've got free reign once they're in the building. And and how do they get in the building in the first place? Uh, So you have to apply for one of those passes. So it's for people that say they need to have regular contact with politicians. A politician will vouch for them and say they're of good character. Then once they get the pass, they can walk in and sort of you know, go and knock on whoever doors they, they would like to. So Jackie Lambie kind of refers to these orange passes as the, the backstage passes of the, the lobbying world. Um, so it gives you sort of an incredible amount of, of access. Are they the type of people that politicians welcome with open arms to their corridors or kind of try to avoid and pretend they're not there? Look, I suspect it's a bit of a mixed bag. So the best lobbyists will have pretty good relationships with politicians. You know, they want them to sort of, you know, open their arms to them when they when they see them around. Um, and you often see, um, you know, if you go to Parliament House, there's a, there's a public coffee shop that you or I can go to if we walk in. Um, then there's the one in the private area. And if you, you know, walk through that cafe, Aussies, on any given day, you'll see a mix of um, senior politicians as well as lobbyists, you know, trying to kind of accost them as they're waiting in line for their latte. It basically sounds like going to a sporting event and having a special pass for a bunch of agents who are there to kind of coerce and massage and, and do things like that in terms of doing deals and, and all that. So it's good to know that it exists in other realms as well in, in politics. And 
the actual breakdown of it, what do people have the Orange Pass for in terms of what are they lobbying for or about? Well, we don't have very good visibility over this. And this is one of the issues around lobbying. It's not particularly transparent. So there is a register of lobbyists, but that only includes people that what we call third party lobbyists. That is that they lobby on behalf of clients. So if I'm a business and I want to employ a, you know, a lobbyist to work for me and make connections for me, that particular person might be on the register. But there are a whole lot of people that have orange passes. There's over 2,000 of these things floating around that are not on the register. So people that work for peak bodies, so things like the Minerals Council or the Business Council, they might work in government relations roles. So they're sitting inside Woolworths or BHP and their job is to you know, go and talk to politicians and advocate for their company's particular interests but they're not counted as lobbyists for the purposes of being on the register. So we know that there's 2,300 orange passes, but who these people are, we don't have specific visibility over. Isn't that a bit strange? Wouldn't it be better if we knew exactly who everyone was so we knew where everyone was coming from? Absolutely. So we think lack of transparency is a real issue here. Um, We actually think that ministers should be required to publish their diaries So you actually have a list of uh, who they've talked to in any given day. So this already happens in New South Wales and Queensland. You can go online and see who the New South Wales Premier has been talking to. Uh, I think that exactly the same logic should apply to the federal government. Um, You know, we're taxpayers, we're paying their salaries. Uh, These people are seeking to influence them. At the very minimum, we should be able to see who it is that they're talking to. I recently went to Russia and I'm convinced that people in Russia know exactly who I talk to on a daily basis on my phone. So maybe it's a good thing here in in Australia if we have something similar. (laughs) Indeed, maybe something a little bit more available to the general public than the the Russian information. (laughs) A bit bit more above board. Um, So tell us who are the big lobby groups? Like who are the big ones that roam the hallways there at Parliament House? Well, look, we know that any sizable company is going to have some full-time people working in their government relations team. So they'll certainly be walking around Parliament House. Uh, We know when we look at the list of clients for the the big lobby firms, so these are ones that lobby on behalf of people, that they tend to skew towards big business as well. So probably bigger businesses are the most represented, but a whole range of people are going to try and lobby. So um, charities, not-for-profits, community groups, unions are another big one. Um, all of them are trying to have influence on government decisions, so they'll be lobbying in some capacity or another. Um, there's often debate about, you know, who are the most effective lobbyists. Uh, a lot of people have the pharmacy guild at the top of their list, which might be surprising to some listeners, but they've been incredibly effective over time in convincing government to keep in place uh, policies that are pretty advantageous for their members, but not necessarily as good for the, the general public. In what way? Give us the example within that example, if you could. Um, So one example, um, at the moment, only a pharmacist can open a pharmacy. So um, you or I can't decide to open a pharmacy and employ a pharmacist. You can only open a pharmacy Mm. if you're outside of one kilometre from an existing pharmacy. Um, So there's all sorts of restrictions on the locations of new pharmacies that are actually designed to limit competition. Mm. Um, Supermarkets can't employ a pharmacist and dispense drugs, which would be a lot easier for all of us if we were able to get our drugs from the pharmacy. And despite the fact we've had any number of government reviews say that those changes would be a good thing and in the public interest, uh, the pharmacy groups have been very, very effective at stopping government from implementing those changes because every time someone contemplates it, 
the threat is, you know, we will put a little bit of marketing material inside every single prescription that we dispense saying, you know, how terrible this government is and how they're going to destroy your local pharmacy. So we know why the lobbyist wants to meet the politician. Why does a politician want to meet a lobbyist? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is kind of goes to the nature of what lobbying is. So it is a good thing that politicians are out there talking to people that are going to be affected by changes in policy. Um, we don't want politicians sitting there in the bubble and making legislative changes that affect all sorts of different groups without understanding the ramifications of that. So the fact that they're you know, talking to businesses, talking to unions, talking to community groups is positive. What I'm often concerned about is the balance of those meetings. So if they're only talking to people that knock on their door and they tend to be the ones that are really well resourced and, and really highly motivated, they may end up getting a pretty skewed perspective on the issues with a particular policy. I think a much better world would be where you know politicians contemplating a policy change, they think about all the different groups that might be affected and actually invite them to, to come and talk to them about how that particular policy would would impact them. Yeah, I was going to say, surely the good politicians are firmly in charge of their own political agenda so that they don't have that problem. It's the ones on the fringes that perhaps aren't maybe used to what actually goes on in Canberra or they've got a different idea on how it should run. Are they the, the problem areas, if you're going to put it that way? Look, I think you'd be surprised just how, you know, full on the life of a politician is. You know, when people are knocking on your door saying, I've got some information for you relevant to this piece of legislation you're currently considering, um, you know, perhaps you just sort of take the meeting. Whether you've got time to sort of step back and say, you know, here are all the people I should think about consulting on this uh, is a real open question. And I think, you know, the fact that people are pouring so much money into lobbying, into employing professionals to do this for them, suggests that, you know, there is an advantage to be had in having people sort of proactively there on the ground. Overall, how much influence would you say lobbyists have? It's very difficult to trace. And partly because we don't, as I said, we don't have much visibility about exactly how much of this is going on. But what you can do is, you know, look at particular policy decisions, look at the way the industry responded publicly in terms of running campaigns, um, in terms of the money they donate to political parties, which is all tied in here with, um, you know, access and influence, as well as kind of the effort they put in behind the scenes. And, you know, certain policy decisions, for example, like when the Gillard government was considering um, changing the rules around poker machines and moving to mandatory pre-commitment, what we know is that the industry threw everything at it. They donated a lot of money to the opposition at that point in time. They ran big public campaigns. Um, and, you know, if you talk to anyone who was on the ground in parliament at that point in time, you know, the, the corridors were thick with people from the clubs, the hotels associations, and that was actually ultimately effective in, in getting that um, legislation destroyed. So I think you can kind of follow the money, follow the influence, and certainly see they do seem to have a role in particular policy debates. So in essence, like I mentioned up the top there, dollars and cents, they're, they're essentially after money or the protection of their own money, full stop. Well, look, every company, it's going to try and do what's there for its own interests. Mm. And quite often, you know, that that could be a good thing. We, we don't want governments putting in place policies that, you know, are crazy and going to hurt big employers in certain ways. But on other times, um, they may well be 
trying to get something which is particularly for them is going to work well, but is not necessarily in the influence of Australians as a whole. And that's where you want those counter opinions coming into play. You want politicians talking to broad groups to make sure that they're taking decisions that are in the national interest, not in particular narrow interests. Just taking a step back about how our political system works, so for a piece of legislation to come in or be changed, it's got to go through two houses. It's got to go through the House of Representatives and the Senate. I've learned all this by doing this podcast. It's a wonderful educational experience, basically, for, for myself, if nothing else. <laughs> great community service as well, I believe. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. I think I've got the hang of it. But yeah, so it's got to get through two houses and there's committees which debate the wording of it all. So in essence, it's not like a, a lobbyist rocks up to one politician and goes, hey, mate, this would be a good idea to, to get this through. And all of a sudden, we're all blindsided. And next thing we know, we're part of a world that lives with that legislation. What I'm trying to get at is, does the political system protect us a lot from lobbyists and only the good stuff gets through? Uh, So I think that's partly right. So there are some decisions that parliamentarians make which will be in the hands of a single minister to sign off on something in particular, and in that they're probably the weakest points because you've got sort of a single point at which that can um, get through or not get through. But as you say, legislative change, there's lots of checks and balances along the way. Um, So good lobbyists will have relationships with both sides of politics. They'll probably spend quite a lot of time talking to the crossbenchers, so the people that whose vote you know may well be pivotal in the Senate to get things through. Um, so that does absolutely provide a check on the amount of influence that lobbyists can have because they need to talk to different groups. But again, if you're there day in, day out, you have relationships with all these sorts of people, almost certainly you know your views are getting heard in a way that a lot of other groups, um, you know, less well-resourced Australians are, are not being heard. As we sit here after the summer we've had and the debate about climate change, for example, and bring it into the world of lobbying, is it fair to say that in the corridors in Canberra Parliament House, there are all these orange past lobbyists on behalf of, say, the coal industry, uh, other energy industries, renewables as well, that kind of industry, they're all bumping into each other trying to get in the ears of politicians. Is that essentially in effect how it's playing out with an example like that? So we know that um, big mining and energy companies are very prevalent in the lobbying game. They have very big in-house teams dealing with these types of issues. They have a really well-resourced industry groups such as the Mining Council of Australia who've been pretty successful in the past at running campaigns against changes that will impact the industry. We know that they are major political donors. So some of the you know biggest political donations come from people in the mining and resources industries. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, that particular group has a fair degree of clout in the corridors of, of parliament. And you know, it, there, there may well be green groups that are in there as well, trying to, to put the message about climate change. Um, but, you know, they simply don't have the, the resources or the people, I think, to develop the relationships in the same way as, as the industry does in that case. You know how you mentioned there's a, a register for, for lobbyists and that doesn't account for all of them, as you mentioned, but what are the rules and limitations around what a lobbyist can and can't do? 
So if a lobbyist is on the register, then they have to comply with what's the, the lobbyist code of conduct. It's a fairly high level set of rules that say things like they should not mislead politicians when they talk to them. If they're involved in the party structure, so if they're a senior person in the Liberal Party, they should separate that role from their, their lobbying role which is quite a, a strange one. Mm. Um, and there's very little sanction, actually, if they don't comply with the code. So the only punishment for non-compliance is being deregistered as a lobbyist. Um, whereas in other countries, they have much more formal regimes that are regulating lobbyists and they will have things like fines and even prison sentences in some cases for, for lobbyists that commit. Where's that? Uh, UK, US... Um, so we actually have very, very light touch regulation around lobbying compared to a lot of other um, developed countries. And that's not a good thing in your opinion? Look, I think we should have clearer clearer boundaries and standards and perhaps, um, you know, much clearer enforcement of the policies that are in place. I think, you know, this is such an important thing for democracy and how it functions that thinking a little bit more about the rules of the game and the restrictions that we put around this activity would be really valuable. What about the reverse there about the rules and limitations around what a lobbyist can and can't do. What about for a politician towards a lobbyist about their rules and limitations? Uh, so ministers are required to comply with the ministerial code of conduct. That puts some limitation on them, particularly in terms of their financial dealings with lobbyists and other parties. So they're not allowed to accept um, gifts in value. I think it's above $300, for example. So if they were given something more valuable than that, they either have to return it or, or pay the difference. They have to list all the hospitality and gifts that they receive on a register. Um, for backbenchers, it's quite interesting. The, the same rules don't apply. So at the moment, there's no code of conduct um, governing parliamentarians outside of ministers. They can actually accept a gift of any value from anyone as long as they declare it but there is actually no restriction on what they can accept. Oh, they have to declare it though. To they let have it to declare it. So it will be on the public register, but they do not have to return it. Okay. So I was going to say a backbencher sitting there with his his or her 12 plasmas at home. Yeah, we'd know about it. We, we would hopefully know about it. So, you know, one example is, um, do you remember the scandal a couple of years ago, Sam Dastiari had his personal telephone bill paid for by a, a, a Labor Party donor. Yep. He ended up having to uh, resign as, as minister as a result of that, but it, technically he hadn't actually broken, um, as, sorry, as shadow minister, he hadn't broken any rules in accepting that contribution to his personal bills. It was just a bad look. It was a bad look, that's right. So we're relying on that transparency in the absence of stricter rules. And on his behalf, if it was for a phone bill, it's a pretty stupid look because surely he could have got the, you know, $69 make as many calls as you want and as many texts as you want, unlimited bundle. <laughs> it didn't dumb. seem like he had a pretty, it didn't seem like he had a particularly good deal on his phone. You're right. <laughs> no, stupid, Sam. Maybe that was his biggest mistake. Anyway, um, so overall, lobbying is necessary for a democracy like Australia is. We should be pretty comfortable about it. It's just bits and pieces of it could become a bit blurred if they don't tighten things up. That's right. So I think what's important is say, what are the rules of the game here? Let's have clearer standards about the way lobbyists behave. Let's have much more transparency about who they are and who our politicians are meeting with. Um, and let's find ways as well to try and encourage politicians to think about the other groups 
that might not have the resources to be knocking on the door and how they actually hear from them. I think if you can get all of those things right, um, then you end up with a much healthier environment and, and ecosystem for policy decisions to be made. As long as there is politics, will there be lobbyists? Yes, there will be. And yes, there should be. Um, so to be really clear, we want politicians out there talking to businesses, unions, community groups, all sorts of groups that are affected by policy. I just think they should be a lot more cognizant of the balance of those interactions and making sure that the groups that, you know, don't have the resources to be knocking on the doors. So, you know, young people, welfare recipients, consumer groups, uh, you know, making sure that their voices are heard and they get consulted at the same time. Is it a growing industry or is it a declining industry? Well, again, because of the you know lack of visibility over who actually lobbies, we can't answer definitively. What we can say, there are more lobbyists on the lobby register than there used to be, and there are more orange pass holders than there used to be. Um, so that certainly suggests to me that that's a, an industry that's growing. Um, and in a way, that's not surprising. I think you know, increasingly a lot of areas of government policy are pretty complex. There's a lot to gain or lose from which way those decisions go. Um, and so it's really worth it for, for firms to put money into this because there's a lot of there's a lot of dollars on the line. Just for one day I want one of these orange passes now. Not not anymore, just one day. Just to go and play <laughs> knock and run on every door in Parliament House. That'd be fun. I'm sure they'd uh, love to see you there. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> might might I be bet. a bit of light relief for them. <laughs> yeah, it'll be one day only on, on both parts, I'd dare say. Um, Danielle, thanks so much for joining me on Peacock Politics and telling me about the fascinating world of lobbying. I know a bit more now. Thanks for having me, Adam. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matilov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.